0: Make the most of your me time with sensational hair products from Method. The new range of shampoos and conditioners will leave your hair looking shiny and feeling healthy. From pure peace, infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein, to simply nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. And daily zen with calming cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower with Method and reconnect with the best version of yourself. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From Chile to Khartoum, Shanghai to Sydney, wherever British colonists ventured in the 18th and 19th century, cricket was sure to follow. And it wasn't long before eager imperialists were viewing the game as a way to, in their eyes, educate native populations in the virtues of Britishness. As the T20 World Cup heads towards its final stages, the historian Suvik Nahar joined our production editor, Spencer Mizen to talk about cricket's so-called civilising mission in the age of empire.
2: Suvik, in your recent feature for BBC History magazine, you describe how over the course of almost two centuries, British imperialists saw cricket as a means of exporting English virtues to their colonies across the globe, all part of what they kind of viewed as this grand civilising mission. Now, you, you write early in the piece that cricket was seen to represent the very English qualities of fair play, equanimity, and loyalty. Now, my first question is, why was that? Why was this game, as opposed to, say, football or boxing, regarded as a symbol of, of English integrity and honesty? Um,
3: thanks, Spencer. That's a great question to begin with, actually, because uh, in the opinion of most historians of 19th century England, uh, Middle England and also the southern part of England underwent a very significant process of gentrification. And with that process also came industrial modernity and also a kind of civilizing vision which were articulated mainly through Uh, the private educational institutions of Victorian Britain and also through other avenues such as missionary activities within and outside England. And most of the proponents of these activities started to demarcate good and bad behaviour, what makes someone a good citizen and what are the qualities of an ideal imperial person who would uphold the quality of being English or British to their liking. So English and British were kind of highly demarcated uh, terrains of identity at the time uh, and highly contested as well. So, in cricket, most of these proponents of British or English virtues found an ideal way of propagating what was uh, good for their daily lives, what what would uh, identify them as good citizens, and what, what these virtues really were. So... Cricket started in England almost um, seven centuries ago, back in the 13th century. It was mostly associated with gambling, rustic people, all sorts of violence. It was often banned by different monarchs in the 15th, 17th centuries. And on Sundays, when most people would go out to play cricket, sometimes the local parish or the vicar would put a ban on cricket because that was distracting people from church service everything suddenly changed in the middle of the 19th century when suddenly there was a huge upsurge Mm -hmm. of enthusiasm among Mm -hmm. the British elite regarding cricket. Uh, Why cricket and not in any other sport? We don't really have a very clear answer to it. But somehow cricket became the sport that they would all favour as that pursuit of excellence, as citizen, as... uh, Patriot as the ideal person to uphold the virtues of the nation and also the empire, to prepare people for administrative and military functions of the empire so that the empire can be further glorified, it can be strengthened, and all its bulwarks can be reinforced. So, These were the reasons why cricket became extremely popular in most public schools of Britain in the mid-19th century. The headmasters of different schools and also the principals of different colleges put enormous importance to playing cricket among all its um, students. It also had a very distinct military function because after the Crimean War, there was suddenly a big question put around the military functions of the British Army, and also after the Indian mutiny of 1857, there were question marks around the efficiency of the British military. These kind of questions were further strengthened by the debacle of the Boer War, where, when England faced like severe casualties. So these were the processes which influenced the British people to think that we need to make our bodies more martial, we need more sport And... Cricket became the kind of paradigm of discipline, teamwork, sacrificing oneself in the face of adversity or for the nation. So these were the virtues which were instilled in cricket actively in this period of 50 years. So cricket served a huge and significant ideological function around this period. And these virtues generally became so entrenched in British psyche that we can't even think about Victorian England without cricket.
2: But you're also right that the game of cricket conjured images of England's bucolic past. I mean, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh,
3: Some of the writers on cricket, such as Andrew Lying or after that, A.G. Gardiner and Neville Gardas, they would conjure up this uh, bucolic, uh, these images of the bucolic pasts of England, the rusticity, which were at the core of Englishness. So, This process started in the late 19th century when writers would usually ascribe good qualities into being back to nature. The connection with nature was extolled in most of these writings of this period. And also people were getting disaffected with industrial modernity. So they were saying that industrial Britain was making huge profits, but it was actually getting people away from what England really meant. So there was this mythologization and romanticization of rustic rural England. And since the... Portraits of cricket, photographs were not really very popular at the time. That came much later. We always see most of the portraits of cricket, uh, the game being played on the village green by people who were like mostly amateurish and not really professionals. So they would just play cricket for fun. So these kind of images gradually became very strong reminders of what was English about England. And these also served to differentiate England from its other parts of the United Kingdom, like Scotland or Wales. So cricket was something that differentiated England from Britain and also other parts of the British Empire.
2: Now, reading your, your feature, I soon realised that Britons were playing cricket overseas much earlier than I'd ever imagined. Um the early ex- example that you cite is, I believe, a group of British seamen having a game while their ship was anchored off the coast of Western India in 1721. I mean, could you give us some more examples of the of the game being exported abroad in, in, in the early days of empire? Yes,
3: uh, British people started playing cricket wherever they went. So there is this military dossier from Egypt from the late 17th century, that's 1680s, and it talks about a group of British seamen playing cricket in Alexandria. There are also hundreds of other examples from British soldiers and seamen and missionaries and merchants, also other kind of functionaries of the empire and also civilians. They are Taking the cricket bat and ball and stumps with themselves wherever they're going. There are other examples from other parts of Asia as well. Uh, there was this uh, Army cricket club in Rangoon from 1825. Uh, the British Army started playing cricket in Buenos Aires in 1831, in Shanghai, 1858, Valparaiso. So when one British admiral went to Valparaiso to head the Chilean navy. So, apparently, there were games of cricket organised to uh, welcome him, just to honour his presence among, in, in Chile. So, these kind of examples abound from the entirety of the empire.
2: In the early days, did British colonists encourage native populations to join in with them in playing cricket? Or was it principally seen as a white man's sport at the very beginning?
3: Initially, the British people did not really encourage the natives to play cricket or they really wanted to include them into their playing structures, into their societies, into the club system uh, within which cricket was usually played. Mostly these natives, such as Indians, some Chinese people in Shanghai some other indigenous groups in other people, most of them tried to just imitate the British, they saw them playing on the field, they started procuring the equipment and if they were not able to procure the equipment which are used in cricket, they would just try makeshift bats, a ball made of something else other than leather. So they, they, they would just try to imitate the colonial masters in some instances or Their protectors in some other places. For for China, the the British presence was not as strong as in India, but still they looked up to the British as kind of uh, the patrons of modern civilization and which would make China really improve in due course. So the spirit of imitation was at the heart of cricket in the very beginning. So in India, the Parsis from Western India, in Mumbai, they were the first indigenous groups to take up cricket. So they Uh, They formed a club in 1848, and through that club, cricket became gradually popular in Bombay. The process started in Bengal 30 years later, in the 1870s and 80s, when the people in Calcutta and Dhaka, even they started playing cricket among themselves. And the invitations to play against the British came much later, actually. So in Bombay, it it really started in earnest from 1877 through the presidency match. In Calcutta, it came much later, like in the beginning of the 20th century. And there were also some important figures like Lord Harris, who was the governor of Bombay from 1890 to 1895. So he didn't really support or encourage cricket among the natives, but he realized the ideological value of cricket among the natives. And in his writings and speeches, he would always uh, admire how well the natives are catching up with the British uh, civilizing mission and the virtues of the British empire. And nowhere, apparently nowhere was this more uh, enunciated than in them playing cricket, which was the quintessential British game. So there was a difference between what was being practiced and what was preached as an ideology. And more than its practical uh, impact on native societies, cricket served a very significant ideological function in making the natives closure to European civilization.
2: And how did the the civilizing mission of of spreading cricket around the world reflect and reinforce existing stereotypes about indigenous populations? Did the colonizers kind of assume that they would always be better than indigenous populations at the game of cricket?
3: Yes, a very interesting uh, advertisement of a match came out in Madras Courier sometime in the 1870s, when a group of British officers actually claimed that they would only play against a club full of native people of Madras if the natives played with bat and the officers were given umbrellas. So, because they were so much superior than the natives in terms of cricket and by extension in other fields of life as well, that they they wouldn't really think of it as an even contest unless the natives were given, like, much more advantage than themselves in the game of cricket in terms of the equipment. So this kind of condescending attitudes were always there. They were bolstered by uh, the, the civilizing mission and the central claims of imperialism, that it's essentially a social system which was not really thrust upon colonies, but which were aimed at making the colonies, which were the far places, which gradually became known as the third world in the middle of the 20th century, just to improve uh, the practice of everyday life in these territories. Most of these writings, which had its roots in Orientalist outlooks, which started being very popular from the late 19th, late 17th century, they became bolstered gradually in the 18th and 19th centuries. So the, the central tenets of imperialist thinking and was that the Oriental civilizations used to be very advanced once upon a time, but after that, through wars or declines, they have really... Uh, been they, they have really reached a quagmire of civilization, and it's the moral duty of the European nations to again uplift them to the same level that they once were in. So, cricket fitted very nicely with this because. Apparently, cricket was the quintessential British game, and as such, it held all the values and virtues of being English or being British or whatever good the British Empire really represented. So in that manner, the British educators or civil servants were extremely invested in propagating the values of cricket to the native people. So even though they didn't really help with the practicalities that much, they were always there with moral support or assistance in other manners. And some Indians as well, who were part of the British Empire's administrative mechanisms, like the local princes of India, and also other collaborators who were actively involved into trading with British merchants and other functionaries of the empire. Even they started believing in the civilising virtues of cricket and they started promoting cricket with their money, with their sponsorship. India was able to send a few representative teams to England in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. And without princely patronage, Cricket would never really have prospered into the national game that it has become these days. So, sure. this was definitely done with the encouragement of the British people.
2: Now, you also observed that Christian missionaries were often the most enthusiastic evangelists of the, of the game across the colonies. I mean, why was that? I mean, how did they view cricket as a, as a vehicle for spreading the word of God?
3: The Christian missionaries uh, took recourse to various recreational activities as part of their goal of reaching the natives. So one of them was uh, translating the Bible into native languages across the world and start preaching in local languages to different people start providing meals and clean water to like the rural people who were usually deprived of those things. And cricket was also part of this. So they started believing that cricket was kind of part of God's will and also the ultimate uh, representative of the British Empire. And in some colonies like India and China, when the British Empire didn't really support missionary activities. They, they they didn't really provide any practical assistance. So the church and the state were quite separate from one another. So they both believed in civilizing mission, but they wanted to do them differently. So Different ways, yeah. to an extent, to be able to curry favor with the local government, with uh, the purchase of land for making churches, or for other activities which were really... Uh, for which the local government assistance was really necessary. Like for for instance, the Baptist missionaries wanted to build homes for sailors in all the Indian port cities, where would the money and the land come from? Definitely the government has to play a significant part part in it. So they wanted to echo what the British government was actually thinking as well. And since the British Empire was so much invested in cricket, so it was only natural that even they would consider cricket to be something that would be very useful in preaching Christianity and also their belief systems.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: He actually won the war of succession, beating everybody else, because the British resident in noanagar and also the British crown, they actively helped him get the throne because of his cricketing connections. They were all in off Ranjit Singh Ji.
1: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire?
2: You need Indeed. Now, this civilizing mission, it it produced some uh, remarkable offshoots, didn't it? And some wonderful adaptations. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the form of cricket now played in the Trobriand Islands just off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Yeah I wonder if you just tell us a little bit about that.
3: Trobriand Islanders have been a very unique case study for anthropologists and historians of the Pacific Islands. Uh, they started playing cricket not just the Trobriand Islanders but the Pacific Islands like Fiji, Samoa. They started playing uh, playing cricket in the early 19th century, but it was not really an organized activity and there was very little connection with the British Empire. Sometimes uh, they went under German occupation and even then they continued playing cricket, not because of any civilizing importance that they attached with cricket, nor were they very much enthusiastic about colonial modernity, uh, which some Indians were really invested in, but they simply liked cricket. So it, it would be very wrong to attach undue importance to some historical processes in, in this matter, but they simply liked cricket and most of the indigenous rulers in this Pacific Islands, they promoted cricket and they actively participated. There were annual matches, there were festival matches, And before every important ritual, there would be a cricket match just to accompany the religious worship. So it became an essential part of their life. But since the connection with the British Empire was rather tenuous among all these islanders, they created their own rules of cricket, partly to resist British influence and to retain some of their indigenous qualities and indigenous uh, belief systems into cricket and also because they just wanted to make cricket something of their own. So there would be no restriction in the number of players in each team, no restriction in the balls to be delivered each over. And between overs there, there would be a ceremonial dance at the fall of each wicket. A priest would be called onto the pitch and he would perform some rituals to augur better performance from the next batsman. Uh, The games would mostly be played between two villages and they were not really competitive in nature. Like there, were, there, there, there were definitely some competition because one village would claim to be superior to the other village, but not in the modern sense that someone would have to score this many runs and someone would have to take this many wickets in this specific period of time. So those kind of codes were completely absent from these games. For them, this was just ritual and an extension of their religion.
2: Now, I wonder if we could turn to uh, Ranjit Singhji. He's a real titan of this story, isn't he? He was arguably the greatest Indian cricketer of the late 19th, early 20th century. I mean, I I wonder if you could tell us a bit about him and, and how he helped to shape English attitudes to
3: the way that cricket was played in the subcontinent. Ranjit Singhji was actually extremely important in shaping British and imperial attitudes were not just Indian cricketers, but Indians in general. Because in the 1890s, he was probably the most visible Indian to the wider British Empire. His matches, his performances, his batting, his catching, everything was celebrated very widely, not just by Indians, but... The British, the Australians, the South Africans, whoever were interested in cricket in that period of time. So apparently that even helped him get the throne of Nawanagar, his native state, because he was not the son of the former Jam Sahib. He was an adopted son. So when his adoptive father died, so there was this war of succession, and he actually won the war of succession, beating everybody else, because the British resident in noanagar and also the British Crown, they actively helped him get the throne because of his cricketing connections. They were all in awe of Ranjit Singh Ji. Ranjit Singh Ji also generated say, several stereotypes about Indian people, which are mostly delineated by Neville Gardas. He always talked about how irrational Ranji's batting was, something which could not be uh, explained by modern science or modern culture. That was something different, a light out of the East. So when he and C.B. Fry batted, he told that at one end there is reason, at the other end there is magic. So he actually helped the orientalizing of Indian social system or Indian society in general and that also helped shape some of the more positive or negative stereotypes about Indians that Indians can perform really well and They don't really have to be coached, but at the same time, those things meant that it was very hard to make Indians disciplined. Indians are very good when they work individually, but as a team, they are very difficult to maintain because they always come up with this kind of individual performances and they may not be great team players. So that also translated into how British administration rolled out in early 20th century India, that Indians are this kind of people and you need this kind of administration to rule them properly.
2: No, it was a a different picture, wasn't it, in places like Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, um, where as you put it in the feature cricket generated a sense of exclusive
3: racialized nationalism but I mean, how did that manifest itself in australia in particular there was this upsurge of australianism in the 1870s and 80s when the australians who were who had been living in the country for a hundred years or so some of whose Uh, ancestors were actually shipped off to Australia as convicts. After that, they served their sentence. They started uh, becoming proper citizens of a newly inhabited land. They started believing that they are separate from Britain. This created a lot of tensions within Australia itself and also to an extent in New Zealand and South Africa. Uh, They started thinking that they are different from England, but there were also some people who would never sever their connections with the mother country. There are humorous representations of people like one district collector in rural Australia who would follow the... GMT, And he would get up when the people in Britain would actually get up in the morning and carry out his daily activities according to the clock in Britain. So they were also this kind of people. But there was this growing sense uh, that Australia is a different country. They wanted to carve out a distinct national identity. And cricket was the major international sport in which they could compete with Britain on an equal footing or rather England, not Britain. At, at the time, the team was mostly called MCC. So they could play against MCC and each of their victories were was actually celebrated as honourable to the making of a new Australian national identity. The same processes unfolded to an extent in New Zealand and South Africa as well, especially in South Africa after the Boer War. There were a lot of racial tensions. There were continuous enmity and antagonism between uh, different European denizens of South Africa, like the Dutch, the British, to an extent the Huguenots, who had fled to South Africa during Reformation. So these kind of tensions often manifested in the field of cricket, though cricket ultimately became dominated by the people who had emigrated to South Africa from Britain and the other people Gradually disappeared from the cricketing scene. There were also the black Africans who became very much interested in cricket, but the history of black cricket in South Africa until very recently has been a story of isolation mostly. There were important figures like Crom Hendricks, for example, who were kind of a away fast bowler who would put the visiting English teams into, like, great trouble. But he was never picked for South Africa in the late 19th century or early 20th century, simply because he was not fully white. So this kind of racial tensions played out acutely in the field of cricket.
2: Now, near the end of the feature, you, you offer this great anecdote of uh, the Indian cricket cricketer C.K. Nayuru. I'm not sure about the pronunciation yes. there. Um, smashing 153 in two hours against an MCC side, at which one spectator commentated that each shot was a nail in the coffin of empire. Now, as you know, Indian and Caribbean, the, the Indian and Caribbean middle classes were now using cricket as a, a weapon with which to protest the inequalities of colonial rule. I mean, how significant a role did cricket play in rallying native populations to campaigns for independence?
3: Particularly in some of the cities across India, there was this uh, huge nationalist fervor related with cricket. So we can't be very sure about how important cricket was and to what extent cricket carried nationalist overtones in rural India because of the lack of sources. But from the metropolitan newspapers and periodicals of that period and also from memoirs, diaries and various other sources, we get a very clear picture that cricket and to an extent football as well, very significantly were associated with anti-colonial nationalism. So in the early 20th century, when the Indian clubs got a chance to participate in tournaments, which were usually populated with British teams in in the 19th century, suddenly this gave Indians the confidence that they can actually compete with the British on a level playing field, which was a luxury for them, which was not available in any other form of life or any other walk of life. Because in the uh, court of law or in administration, Indians always were at a disadvantage. But since they were playing under similar rules and regulations and the most Indians actually envisaged the English referee as someone who is fairer than other judges of character and other things or or who participated in other imperial duties. So they had this confidence that the English umpire would almost never give an Indian batsman out unduly. So that gave Indians the competence and also the confidence to start participating with or playing against British teams. There were uh, tournaments started just because of this and just to make sure that they get enough playing experience. And towards towards the late colonial period, both in India and in different Caribbean islands, the British and the Indian societies actually started coming closer. Some historians have ascribed this to the success of the civilizing mission, that that helped the societies come together. There were also various other reasons, but their interaction actually became more closer and more frequent. And sporting engagements were very important in this cultural and political dialogue that went on in in the late colonial period. So around this time came figures like Sikh and do in India or the three Ws in West Indies, whose cricketing exploits were... uh, mobilized by nationalist leaders and other people, and that gave the general people the belief that even they can be very competent and even they can be fitted as the conquerors of the colonial masters. So in India, this particular example was It's very popular among most historians, that of Sikha Naidu, who scored 153 in quick time. And apparently, on the same day, the Indian National Congress had its annual convention. And in every major Bombay newspaper, the news of Naidu actually was printed on bolder and larger fronts than what Gandhi had said. So for one day at least, cricket had become more important than the most important businesses in Indian politics. And the same happened in West Indies as well. So cricket became part of their nationalist consciousness to such an extent that they would declare holidays on the days of important cricket matches. And when Barbados became independent, the prime minister's address was to was scheduled on the day of a very important inter-island cricket match. The cricket match could not be disturbed, so the prime minister's address was postponed until the next day. So this was the importance of cricket for nationalist politics.
2: Now, finally, Suvik, uh, the world of cricket has changed dramatically over the past few decades. And India is very much the powerhouse of the of the modern global game, as the rise of the IPL and recent test performances against Australia and England have proven However, you you conclude your feature by arguing that almost a century on, the empire is still woven into cricket's fabric. I mean,
3: what do you mean by that? The codes of cricket that were put in place by the MCC in the 1780s and 19s, they, they underwent continual change. But the essence of cricket has not really been transformed as much. So the number of players are still the same as it were, like, two centuries ago, and the basic codes of cricket have not really changed. So as a soft cultural form, cricket has been imbued with various meanings, with the dynamics of society. So as a hard cultural form, the practice of cricket hasn't really changed as much. Just that, the dynamics and domains of cricket, the countries in which it's played, the time uh, in which it's played, like the months. So there would be no cricket in the summer months even 10 years ago. But now we have cricket throughout April and May in the heat of India. These were unthinkable even to Indians, even three decades ago, where there were no cricket in the summer months at all because it can get unbearably hot. But now in the months of May, not just Indians are playing cricket, but also people from England, Australia, South Africa, they are going and playing in the heat of India without much of a complaint. So I would say that cricket hasn't changed that much as a sport itself. It still is reported with the same enthusiasm that it used to be 100 years ago. And its fan base has increased. And... It has been completely commercialised in the last 20 years or so now. You, you, you can watch cricket from any country in the world almost. Its global reach has increased. But the game of cricket hasn't really changed that much in terms of organisation and culture.
0: That was Sue Vicknaha. Suvik wrote a feature on Cricket's colonial crusaders which appeared earlier this year in the July issue of BBC History magazine. You can also find that on our website. Just go to historyextra.com and search for Cricket. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collie. Join us again on Friday when Sarah Reed will be exploring pregnancy and childbirth in early modern England.